I am, I've turned off the air conditioner for this, uh, this brief interlude. <laughs> Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the so tired of political conventions podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August the 1st, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. So before we get to a fascinating conversation about public health, we both have some lightning round worthy objects to move from off our desks. Uh, I'll start with a pretty soft one. Um, the uh, the controversial star ratings are finally out uh, at Medicare.gov. Um, so you can go there and look up your local hospitals and see whether they are one star or two star before you rush to the emergency room. Um, the criteria... Um, uh, as sort of announced before, they look at mortality, safety of care, readmissions, patient experience, effectiveness of care, timelessness of care, effective use of, of imaging. Um, and those have been sort of gored by the industry uh, in uh, previous iterations. Um, the results that came out, um, only 2.2% of hospitals received a five-star rating. Uh, just over 20% got four stars. And then the big sort of bulge in the middle is three stars, where um, uh, uh, almost 1,800 uh, hospitals um, hung around. And there are even a few who got one star, uh, about uh, just under 3%. Um, now, uh, that's a pretty brutal curve and one that only law students really could appreciate. Um, <laughs> and as you can imagine, there is a considerable dissatisfaction in provider land. Um, some of the criticisms seem fair. Um, you know, and we've heard them before in the context of readmissions adjustments, right? Um, that the data doesn't take into account um, uh, demographics, patient mix, and so on. On the other hand, you can kind of see CMS's problem. Uh, raw data just doesn't mean much, and people aren't really using it. So they have to come up with some less granular approach, I guess. Um, and I, I guess we'll see how the system matures and the extent to which uh, it, it uh, becomes uh, useful and used. Um, now, Frank, I know you've been thinking about the new payment models, and it will be interesting to see whether uh, value starts moving into these hospital ratings and the consumer information space and not just reimbursement space. Absolutely. And I'm so glad this was on our lightning round desk because... One of the things that I think is really important that has not really been tackled by the advocates of these sorts of ranking and ratings. And by the way, you see them also at the Department of Education. There was a huge, uh, there's a huge uproar over the potential ranking and rating of colleges, uh, on certain scales. But there's not nearly enough attention to how are people using these. And when I look at the scholarship here, you know, by Kristen Madison and Anne-Marie Marchirilli to name, you know, but a few of the health law and policy folks that have looked at this, there's real concern that consumers just are not looking at these rankings and ratings. And there's secondary concern that you raised, Nick, that, you know, this, this sort of, uh, there's not enough granularity. And the third concern I would raise from a 2015 health affairs article is, uh, there, this, this was a study of the four different rating systems, the US News World Report and Consumer Reports and, and two others that showed that among these rating systems, it was not very common for them to have the same hospitals in their top quartile or top 10% or whatever that might be. 
So yeah. I think until yeah. we have a much better sense of that, I'm, I'm a bit worried. Well, in terms of my uh, first lightning round contribution, it's an article uh, in the New York Times uh, attributed to the AP uh, titled uh, Medicare Safeguard Overwhelmed by Pricey Drugs. And it's an analysis of Medicare's catastrophic prescription drug coverage, uh, which jumped by 85% from 2013 to 2015, from 28 billion to about 51 billion. The basic idea here is that catastrophic coverage, even though it only, uh, only 9% of Medicare beneficiaries who have Part D get to it, um, it is consuming 37% of the uh, overall budget for drugs. And some actuary quote in the article says, you know, we never anticipated $1,000 pills. So I would just put this on folks' radar as an area where there's got to be some attention in terms of the outlier costs of some medication. And I, I did read that piece when it came out, and uh, there was sort of a, a hint maybe uh, uh, reading between the lines that uh, um, uh, some of this was manipulation, uh, some of this was uh, on purpose, that uh, uh, these the catastrophic policies were, were leading to this. Yes, and that would be a really unfortunate uh, result, you know, if you ended up just sort of creating this sort of just open invitation to raise prices as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I'm also now going to health affairs, and I think this links in to a large extent to the uh, the information problems that consumers have that we mentioned earlier. It's a really interesting piece of work by uh, Simon Hader and colleagues. They took the issue of narrow networks, but attacked it in a rather interesting way. They used secret shopper techniques, and uh, the group that they looked at was a subset of um, primary care providers in California. And it's a piece well worth reading. Um, they reported two disturbing patterns, and I don't think either are going to be particular surprises, dear listeners. First, new patients, whether they were in exchange or commercial plans, had an extremely low chance of getting an appointment in anything sort of reasonable time. Uh, less than 30% could get a, 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 an appointment. Even those who said they had acute conditions when they did their secret shopping couldn't get appointments in less than sort of of eight to 12 days. The second finding, which I thought was equally interesting, was that they found that network listing accuracy in these plans that they looked at was very poor. Provider directories were outdated. And the authors, as I read it, suggested that indeed this may have fooled regulators into thinking that some of these networks are wider than they actually are. So when I look at the, the two findings from, from this piece of research, Research, it looks like we have both capacity and information problems. Yes, and I think that is a fantastic study to highlight. And it really shows that we needed not only with this uh, Affordable Care Act to build up new institutions like the exchanges, but what we also needed and didn't get was a whole new level of regulatory scrutiny because it looks like there's some really troubling manipulations in terms of how things are being presented to uh, patients. So, yeah, it is deeply worrying. And I think just moving on to uh, my next topic, uh, last for today, um, that also talks about a failure of the current system, uh, more on the capacity side. Uh, there was a very good article in Vox on how medicine is failing the obese. And it talks about uh, the weight limits of MRI and CT scanners, which now are at about 400 pounds, and nuclear medicine stress tests tables have weight limits around 300 pounds. 
and you have an increasing number of patients that are over and above these. And it raises some very difficult questions for uh, the healthcare system in terms of perhaps regionalization of bariatric uh, services, or uh, perhaps taking a leaf out of the disability studies literature and Ani Satz's work, trying to develop more for universal design, designs that are meant to accommodate a population of all sizes. Um, it's just going to raise a lot of very difficult issues, I think, in the future. Yeah, yes, agreed. Well, the final piece, my final uh, contribution to the lightning round, I, I confess was, um, I think, a, a sort of a, a mini journey that I started just by um, sort of clicking on things that looked interesting. Uh, it started with a blog post from friend of the show, Chris Robinson, on Bill of Health, um, where he talked about two senior executives at a medical device unit of Johnson & Johnson who were recently convicted of promoting um, a product for an off-label use. And the prosecutors seem to have gone after the executives uh, because of their belief that the company had intended the off-label use all along and had actually sought to mislead the FDA. And Robinson makes some interesting points, which I, I think he promised to, to flesh out uh, further, about the government's attempts to skirt the Coronia case with regard to how they uh, approached the prosecution. Two days after those verdicts, the other shoe dropped, and there was the unsealing of a settlement by the company, which involved a payment of $18 million in, and a, a, a big chunk of money to a whistleblower. Clicking further, uh, I noticed that the Eighth Circuit recently upheld prison sentences imposed on executives from an Iowa egg farm for food safety misdemeanors. So after sort of bouncing around these cases and thinking about them, where I ended up was with the DOJ's infamous Yates memo that, of course, outlines the importance of individual liability and accountability in DOJ prosecutions. And I was wondering, Frank, I, I think health lawyers have tended to read the Yates memo in the sort of limited context of fraud and abuse cases. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I certainly wonder whether far broader treatment is needed with regard to that across all aspects of health regulation. And I hope to see more on these issues from Robertson and others. Completely agreed on that. And that is a terrific set of connections. I was actually just talking with my colleague, Rena Steinzer, uh, who wrote a book called Why Not Jail? Sort of a compliment to uh, Brandon Garrett's um, Too Big to Jail on this question of corporate accountability. It's a key one. I also would just say, with respect to the First Amendment issues, I think uh, Chris Robertson is absolutely right in terms of his fears of expansion here. If you look at you know some of the work by like Andrew Tutt on software as speech and some of the more expansive claims made about code at being speech in the wake of the Apple uh, iPhone controversy, you see that these types of claims really are hard to cabin. And this problem was predicted all the, several years back by Robert Post and Fred Schauer when they looked at the nature of First Amendment coverage and its boundaries. And so I'm really glad to see someone like Chris uh, applying his uh, great insight and uh, skill to trying to think about some limits and to point out the uh, potential ramifications of this expansion of the First Amendment. Indeed, indeed. This week on 12, we greet two public health experts. Rusty Silverman is Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Richard M. Fairbank School of Public Health at IUPUI and holds a secondary appointment at my law school, IU McKinney School of Law. Welcome back to 12, Ross. It's a great pleasure to be here, Nick. Matthew Penn 
is a lawyer who works at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He serves as the director of the CDC Office for State, Tribal, Local, and Territorial Supports Public Health Program, uh, luckily shortened to PHLP. Uh, prior to entering federal service, uh, Matthew was a staff attorney uh, advising or uh, serving uh, South Carolina's Department of Health and Environmental Control. Um, he's uh, a long history of uh, public service, uh, uh, principally in uh, South Carolina. Uh, Matthew, we've been trying to put this chat together for a while. So finally, a big welcome to the pod. Yes, and thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Cribbing from your bio, Matthew, uh, it says, uh, as PHLP director, you lead a team of legal analysts responsible for the agency's efforts to support the use of law as a public health tool at the state, tribal, uh, local, and territorial levels. Um, Can you put some extra flesh on those bones for the listeners? Uh, uh, Exactly what is the sort of the the legal part of public health at CDC? And uh, and perhaps uh, then we'll transition from that into uh, your assessment of of its uh, importance. That's great. Thank you. So at at the Centers for Disease Control and in other health departments uh, around the country, uh, lawyers uh, wear many hats, um, and we, we tend to think of it as falling into two broad categories. There is uh, traditional legal practice of what we think of as lawyers doing on a day-to-day basis, um, advising uh, clients, uh, representing clients uh, in an advocacy way, so through litigation uh, or through pursuing legislation uh, through the legislative branch. Um, and CDC certainly has an office that does that, the Office of General Counsel, a team of attorneys that gives legal advice to the agency and to employees of the agency in the conduct uh, of their day-to-day business. The other side uh, of, of the law uh, that lawyers engage in in public health is more what many people consider to be a policy work and, and is uh, where uh, the public health law program uh, fits pretty squarely. Um, and we engage in three large areas of work uh, in advancing the use of law as a public health tool. Um, we certainly do a lot of workforce development activities, so lots of trainings. Um, we gather together subject matter experts on public health law. We do webinars um, and in-person trainings uh, throughout the year, uh, sometimes as many as two or three a week, uh, to try to get the word out about how public health law uh, affects the public's health. We also do a lot of outreach. Uh, So we uh, have networks of attorneys that represent public health departments throughout the country, at the state level, at the local level. Uh, We converse uh, often with lawyers that represent uh, tribal nations and tribal organizations. Uh, and uh, create a lot of peer-to-peer opportunities for folks to to share knowledge and information on the issues that are concerning their health departments uh, on a day-to-day basis. And the third area that we work in uh, is what we call uh, legal epidemiology. Um, so this is very rigorous, uh, scientifically-based study uh, of the law um, and translating that into publications and then ultimately into Uh, what I talked about in terms of the outreach, providing assistance to to health departments around the country, and also translating that information into uh, the workforce development opportunities, whether it's the webinars, in-person trainings, or um, also training up-and-coming lawyers and law students that are interested in breaking into public health law as a career. You've done uh, some work with friend of the show, Scott Burris, and others on a piece, I guess, that's coming out soon, the transdisciplinary approach to public health law piece. Um, and for me, as a sort of a non-public health lawyer, one of the takeaways uh, 
from that seems to be that um, you can also make the argument that public health is to a very large extent a product of the law, uh, both the old public health that you talk about, the introduction to that article, and the more modern empirical research genre that you just alluded to. That, that's correct. I, I think that the idea um, that we try to get across um, is that you know, law has always been a part of public health. Um, if we even go back to the, to the sort of origins of modern epidemiology and what we consider to be a modern public health practice, back to the story of John Snow and the cholera outbreak in London, we know all about the study that, that he conducted uh, and the maps that he drew to uh, pinpoint that particular pump as the source of the cholera outbreak. The part of the story that largely goes untold most of the time um, is what happened after he completed his study. And after he completed the study, he actually went to what amounted to the Board of Health uh, and asked the Board of Health to uh, take the handle off of the pump to render it inoperable. And the Board of Health um, exercised its legal authority to take the pump handle off um, so that folks uh, would no longer be able to get uh, what was then understood to be the contaminated water from the pump. So even back to our origin story for, for modern public health, we see a relationship between science and law, between epidemiology and public health legal authorities to help control uh, the spread uh, of disease uh, in a community. And as we look across the 20th century and many of the great achievements uh, that we um, saw across the 20th century in public health, many of those find their, their core power and their core ability to affect uh, public health in the law. Um, just vaccination as an example, one of the reasons why we have such high vaccination rates uh, for childhood uh, vaccines is because there are laws that require children to be vaccinated before they enter school and daycare. So uh, law is fundamental to the practice of public health and it really always has been uh, in the modern area in, in the modern era. And we are just delivering that message um, and then also at the same time, broadening the public health law uh, tent, if you were, to bring in more folks, to bring in the scientists, to bring in the social scientists, to bring in the epidemiologists, to say, you know, we can work together uh, to understand better why this happens. How is it that law uh, affects the public's health uh, so that we can uh, do a little bit better job in terms of planning the interventions that we express through law um, and hopefully improving the public's health uh, moving forward? Matthew, I wanted to follow up on that first by saying we have had the opportunity here at Indiana University to have some of the folks from uh, the public health law program come out here. Thara Ramanathan and uh, Isla Haas came out and gave a training for our faculty and our PhD students on legal epidemiology, and it was a, a massive hit here. We have a lot of people who are really excited about getting involved in this, but one of the areas that I really started to recognize is how interdisciplinary this type of practice is, and it requires a whole new set of skills and some new language. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on the kinds of areas that you think are helpful for attorneys and, and legal researchers interested in this area to be building up on. It's, it's a great question, and, and I think part of it really hits at uh, one of the issues we're facing right now, which is 
this is a new field. And part of the reason why it's so exciting and why we're so interested in going out uh, doing pod- podcasts like this, uh, obviously, but also going out uh, in talking to folks uh, in sharing uh, at least our perspective on uh, legal epidemiology is because it's so new. Um, I think at its at at the very very heart of it for attorneys um, is really hits at uh, the the commonly recognized definition of legal epidemiology right now in really wrapping their heads around the fact that we can uh, uh, study a law in a scientific way and law as a factor in the cause distribution and pre- prevention of disease and injury in a population. I think as we go through law school uh, and as we learn about what the practice of law is, um, we we get very little exposure to the ripple effect that laws have. And the way that we structure our society using law can impact uh, people's health. So that right there is is kind of a mind twist for many attorneys to say, well, um, you know, law is just a way to organize political systems or it's a way to give some people authority and, and put exclusive authority in certain agencies and things like this. It really has a much uh, wider impact uh, than than just setting up systems and bureaucratic systems and making some things legal and making other things um, illegal. So I think from that definition, then um, lawyers need to start thinking about well, if we're talking about the scientific study of law, what does it mean to say a scientific study, and how does that differ from typical legal research and typical uh, legal analysis? What we're trying to do is turn a text and largely narrative-based form into quantitative data so that we can then do scientifically-based research and analysis. And oftentimes, um, in certain studies, uh, be able to compare that legal data to health data and other data. So that's another a bit of a, of a mind twist for attorneys to say, well, this thing that I think of as words in sentences in paragraphs and chapters and acts can actually be turned into numbers if I start to really break it down and analyze it and code it um, in a scientific way. Um, so that I can then do quantitative type research on it. So law is a cause of health or injury or disease, uh, and then law as as data that can be coded and turned into something that you see in Excel. I think those are two big fundamental hurdles for lawyers to get over. And I found generally that once folks come to an understanding and they start to read some of these studies and, and get a handle on how you can organize that, uh, they become quite excited about the possibilities um, and start to think about their own areas of the law. So, oh, well, what about, um, you know, I work in zoning. How does that affect health? Or I work in criminal defense. How does that affect health? Um, I work in transportation law. How might that affect health? Um, And how could I generate a research protocol and a research study to determine those effects? Could you give us, uh, Matthew, an example or two of uh, some of those research projects that you think have have, have sort of you know enabled that uh, that ripple effect that that that's, that's helped to uh, push uh, attorneys to understand uh, more of a mind twist. Sure. So so we we've had a couple here in the public health law program uh, that have been quite interesting for us. One is um, in a follow up to uh, the recent uh, fungal meningitis uh, outbreak uh, from from a few years ago. Um, we learned from the field that uh, health departments were were having um, some trouble getting access to electronic 
health records in order to conduct the investigation. Uh, what was causing uh, the uh, the condition of the of the meningitis uh, was unknown at the outset. We knew it was spreading rapidly, uh, and we knew we needed to come to some sort of determination of uh, what was causing it quickly. Many, if not most, of the uh, health records in the country now are in an electronic form, uh, but the development of those systems uh, are varied across uh, the country, um, even within states. Hosp- one hospital system may be extremely advanced, another not so advanced. So as health departments went in to try to get access to the health records, some systems were set up to provide pretty easy access to the information in these electronic systems, and some were not. And in some cases, it actually hindered uh, public health ability uh, to get at uh, a root cause uh, and turned out to be a rather large burden. So at CDC, we were hearing about this from the field and uh, developed a study to start with uh, legal authorities. What exactly are the legal authorities? What do they say about health department authority to access medical records uh, during an outbreak? And are there any that contemplate electronic access? Uh, Certainly for most of public health history, uh, we've been talking about access to paper records. So you go into an office and you flip through a file, you might photocopy, you might fax, you might hand transcribe information you're seeing in a paper record. And we're in this this massive shift over to electronic systems. And the way that we're going to pull that data and the way that we're going to analyze that data is changing very rapidly. And it has the potential to uh, allow us to, to do this faster as long as we can get access to the records. So we did a 50-state assessment uh, on, um, we went through all 50 jurisdictions and looking at the extent to which uh, medical access laws contemplated electronic access and in what ways, and used that to start to select jurisdictions to do an actual qualitative study. So we went in and looked at the laws, and then we started talking to folks in the field to say, you know, how do you get access, and what do these laws mean to you? Uh, And if the laws were changed to allow electronic access, do you think that would help you in your response? Do you think it would hinder you in your response? What are the ways that you would see this happening in a better way next time we have an outbreak like this. And we did this in collaboration with the uh, Association for State and Territorial Health Officers and other groups here at CDC um, and actually published a toolkit uh, on improving access to electronic health records during outbreaks of healthcare-associated infections. And the idea is to understand, to connect the, the state of the law with the state of public health practice, which in this case is investigating a healthcare-associated infection outbreak, and see what that relationship is and start to get thoughts from the field on how to move forward in trying to to better able public health to learn from its experiences and move forward and uh, and do a better job uh, the next time we have this kind of outbreak. And we saw in follow-up to the fungal meningitis outbreak uh, that Tennessee actually updated their law on medical record access to specifically contemplate electronic access and expressly allow for remote access um, so that folks at the health department could sit at the health department and access health records electronically uh, from a remote station and begin to generate the data uh, in a way that would uh, get us to uh, 
uh, causative factor uh, much faster. So that's just one example. In some ways, what you are talking about here is using these collaborations as a force multiplier for local public health departments who are often strapped for funding and staff, let alone the time to develop policy analyses of this type of scope and sophistication. Could you talk a little bit about the process you use to identify what topics you are going to explore in greater depth using these methods? Well, we, we identify them in, in many, many different ways. Um, we have uh, what we consider to be, what I consider to be, a very broad customer base um, uh, consisting of really the, the public health industry uh, throughout the U.S. Um, we have a lot of conversations uh, with uh, programs here within uh, CDC, um, and they are always coming up with interesting questions and um, um, studies on how the law is affecting certain things or how the law may affect certain things, um, including just what is the state of the law? What is the status? What does the law say about a particular topic? Um, sometimes we get requests uh, from uh, health departments out in the field. So state, tribal, local, uh, or territorial health departments uh, will call us uh, or we'll be at a conference uh, and folks will have uh, questions about uh, what the state of the law is. They may be interested in moving in a particular direction on a topic uh, and be curious to know, you know, what are other jurisdictions doing uh, on uh, on this particular topic? Sometimes it comes from partners. Uh, we have um, formally organized groups of attorneys, both with uh, the Association for State and Territorial Health Officers and uh, the National Association of City and County Health Officials. We have organized groups of attorneys that represent health departments and have regular calls with them. And sometimes issues will come up there that they're working on, that they understand that their health department clients are are working on on a day-to-day basis. And they may have questions. What are other jurisdictions do? What are the trends? Practitioners sitting in a health department um, who are um, necessarily having to constantly put out fires for their clients may not necessarily have uh, the time and resources uh, to do that sort of in-depth study. Um, and whether we at the Public Health Law Program provide that type of service to them directly or refer them to other folks in the field that we know that specialize in certain areas, um, we we try to get them uh, the information to make uh, more evidence-based and information-based uh, decisions uh, uh, about just the myriad of legal options uh, that are out there on particular issues. One area that's really challenging in the field that's known as health and all policies, and I think it dovetails nicely with the discussion of legal epidemiology, is the concept of identifying the effects of laws and legal practices as causes of disease and injury, what you call legal etiology. How is that area of research and study developing, and how has that changed as the field of the legal epidemiology has been developing? That's a great question. Uh, I I think in, I think you know referring to it as an evolution um, is a great way to to look at it. Uh, I think uh, based on the work that Scott Burris and others have done uh, over the past uh, say six or seven years, we've come to an understanding that what we now call legal epidemiology was really being done. Uh, for a, a, a very long time, uh, mostly by academics at universities. 
universities, um, and in some sense, in in a little bit of a of a, um, a separated from each other. Um, what we've tried to do in the recent past uh, is to organize that group um, and into a network, uh, into more of a community, um, and to also, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, expand the tent uh, and let not only those folks know that, hey, you're doing public health law. You might not even be a lawyer, but you are doing public health law. And then connecting them with what we have traditionally thought of as public health lawyers. So lawyers representing health departments, bringing that community together under this transdisciplinary model has been one of the steps. And I think the second one, uh, and this has been uh, a bit of a technical evolution, is really coming up with uh, methodologies. How is it that we can translate text-based laws into quantitative data sets for further study. I think traditionally, this practice has been looking at largely uh, binary types of studies. So there's a group of jurisdictions that has a law, whatever that means, and then there's a group of jurisdictions that does not have that law, and looking if there's some sort of association between that binary question, you have it, you don't have it, and some sort of outcome. What we've been trying to do over the past five, six, seven years is get more nuanced about it. Maybe there's something in particular about the jurisdictions that have that law. Maybe there are attributes within those laws that that are the ones that are actually making the difference. And moving beyond this sort of natural experiment of, oh, you've got a law, you don't. Is there a difference in your health outcomes? To try to get much more precise about, you know, maybe it's a collection of attributes within a particular legal domain that really really make the difference. It's not just that you have a law, it's that you've written your law in a particular way, or you have a particular type of enforcement mechanism for that law that works better than others. And here, this is why broadening the tent and making it more of a transdisciplinary practice is so critical, uh, because that takes a particular type of statistical and research expertise that, honestly, many of the lawyers that I know don't have that skill set. And so we necessarily have to bring in other subject matter experts to help us sort through those. We can certainly read the law. I can tell you what is legally important, but I may not be able to tell you what is scientifically or statistically important in a research study. So this idea of collaborative practice across public health law, I think, is really what is going to move public health law forward over the next century. Um, and and hopefully, if we do it right, is going to move uh, public health uh, in a positive direction over the next century because we'll have a better idea of what actually works. Along those lines and looking forward into the future, one of the big shifts that you note is this is a move away for a lot of attorneys from kind of the traditional research that they would do, which would be kind of a solo act um, that they would be able to work on as an individual, whereas this type of a structure requires fairly robust systems. You have to have a multidisciplinary team. You need to have uh, multiple people involved at different stages in order to assure uh, the 
validity of the data that you're collecting and how you're analyzing it. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing as far as how uh, support is je- is developing for infrastructure for this type of work, both within public health law program and maybe you know given your connections within the field, what you're starting to see as far as system building in this area? I think there's a I think there's a couple of of layers to it. So I, I think the first is having an identified set of methodologies uh, and uh, eventually uh, something that we're working on here uh, in the public health law program is an identified set of competencies. So when we talk about legal epidemiology, what is it that you need to know? And hopefully within the next year, year and a half or so, we'll actually have a competency model uh, for legal epidemiology. So when we say, oh, hey, let's do a legal epi study, we understand some level of skill set that you need. uh, And then also we have identified methodologies to say, oh, okay, well, this is how we can actually do it. So I think that's the first step. I think the second step is getting those competencies and those methodologies uh, out there. Uh, We refer to this here uh, as workforce development. Um, So we put on uh, a a lot of trainings. Uh, We bring in uh, young attorneys. Um, uh, We just had over this summer, 2016, uh, we had uh, about 10 uh, law students here uh, for the summer to learn um, that work progression. So there's legal epidemiology. You roll it out in workforce development opportunities like webinars, and then you turn all that knowledge into the written word and you publish studies and you publish assessments of laws. So teaching folks uh, how to do it. And then ultimately, all of this information and all of this um, development is going to work its way uh, into our schools. We find an increasing number of schools offering um, the the Juris Doctorate and Masters of Public Health uh, together as a joint degree. So you get a JD MPH uh, degree. So you're coming at it from both sides. You have that legal perspective um, so that uh, you can read the law accurately um, and advise and give guidance on what the law says. But then you also have a public health perspective and a science side um, so that you understand uh, the programmatic side when scientists and PhDs and, and others are interested in particular public health uh, issues and how things affect uh, the public's health and coming at it with both uh, uh, frameworks, I think, I think is, uh, is extremely uh, helpful. I think the other thing that we're trying to work on too is just increase the amount of study. So as we're bringing in um, competencies and methodologies and training more people on how to do it, um, we're also hopefully increasing the numbers of studies uh, that are out there and build this evidence base. From my vantage point, um, when I look at the breadth and the scope of public health law issues, and I think of all those laws um, that um, at some level or other are affecting the public's health, and then I look at how many of those have actually been studied in a very scientific and systematic way. I see a big gap. So the more folks we get involved and the more folks that we get passionate about this issue, I think we're necessarily going to generate more studies uh, and more uh, evidence, which then ultimately the goal is um, that uh, we provide policymakers with more information, right? Um, The more information policymakers have to make their decisions, the better. Um, And we're hoping that all of this churning of information and legal data and public health data, associational studies and investigational studies will help equip 
equip them uh, to make the decisions that they, they need to make when, when passing laws, whether it's directly on public health or, as you mentioned, health and all policies. It could be information about transportation or the food system or housing laws. Better equip them uh, to make uh, decisions that are uh, suited for their unique situations and, and their jurisdictions. Well, that's fantastic, Matthew. Uh, some great thoughts there and um, probably not a massive surprise for you to learn that uh, Ross and I are going to be meeting later today to award uh, scholarships to some of uh, our great joint degree students, including our JD MPHs. Uh, I met your team when they came out and was super impressed. And uh, I hope you'll be out sometime to to spend some time with us. And uh, just a, a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. And I would certainly, I'd love to come uh, and visit and, and especially love engaging uh, with folks that are passionate about this issue and are looking to break into the field. It's a super exciting time to be in this area of the law, in this area of public health, because it's so new and it's such a collaborative and team effort that uh, it's it's just a lot of fun to get in on a team that's working in these issues and, and to move this field of study uh, forward in a positive way. I really appreciate y'all taking the time to talk with me today uh, and the opportunity to share what we know about about this field. Great fun. And Ross, uh, thank you for uh, for joining us and really helping me to uh, get a, a better grip on, on some of these issues. A, a great pleasure as always. And of course, you can be found on Twitter at PHLU. Thank you, Nick. It's uh, always a pleasure. And uh great talking with you again, Matthew. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>